Amen. Thank you, Lord, for that uh, good word and song just now that we've heard from Taylor. We thank you so much that knowing you is all about a relationship with intimacy, where we have this kind of uh, reality of your presence with us. No matter where we are, wherever we go, you're there. And we thank you so much for that, that we're never alone. And we thank you that you are such a comfort for the lonely and the needy. And Lord, we uh, just want to thank you for uh, this day. We pray that you'll bless your word to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. morning. My apologies for my AWOL absence last, uh, well, I'm trying to remember, was it October or September? The way time flies, but it was recently where I was scheduled to speak and around four o'clock the SWAT pager went off and uh, there was a call out and it was just one of those things and I had a sense that this one wasn't going to get over by the time I was to be here. And I was in training on uh, Thursday at the Naval Air Station in Alameda, and our commander said there's a planned operation for, and my heart was just stopping when he was going to give the date, and it wasn't obviously today, but it's imminent, and it's around the corner, but uh, not to worry, the Lord had me here today. And it's a good thing that um, you got a good brother and Dean that he can, at a moment's notice, fill in, because that's a good thing. When there's a brother that is filled with the Spirit and has a word from the Lord and is able to speak and not to feel like, well, I didn't get a chance to prepare. So that's pretty awesome. Well, it's Veterans Day weekend, of course, and if you have served in the military uh, or you're in active service today, we very much appreciate your labor of sacrifice and service to us. Um, and you're a pitcher in, in, in a in a way that we can understand when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he sacrificed himself for us, that uh, you have been willing to do that for your country, and we thank you for that. I was in a course just a little while ago where I was with some uh, folks at the church we go to, and we uh, it was just a wonderful time. I get off at 6, 6.30 in the morning this morning and got there at about 7.30 or 8 for a meeting, and then we had an hour with some folks, and it's just awesome to be with a group of people who don't know the Lord Jesus and have questions. And uh, so I've just been buzzed the last hour being with some folks who had some good questions and statements and people who are searching for Christ. And I was thinking, as I said to them, you know, there's no such thing as a bad question, uh, no such thing as something you can say that's foolish or that you might want to take back, although I did come across something two days ago that I think maybe is kind of. So I've got to share this with you, but I won't share their names of some people who said a couple of things that you have to think twice about what they were saying. And these are pretty brilliant people. One fellow said, we've got to pause and ask ourselves, how much clean air do we need? You might wonder about that one. Someone else said, smoking kills. If you're killed, you've lost a very important part of your life. I'm not sure what that means. A University of Kentucky basketball forward said, I've never had major knee surgery on any other part of my body. (laughs) I should hope not. (laughs) Department of Social Services in Greenville, South Carolina. These are true quotes. Your food stamps will be stopped effective March 1992 because we received notice that you passed away. May God bless you. You may reapply if there's a change in your circumstances. Former Philadelphia Phillies manager, half this game is 90% mental. Okay? 
former vice president, said, we are ready for an unforeseen event that may or may not occur. <laughs> and the last top two, a former vice president, not the same, said, I love California. I practically grew up in Phoenix. <laughs> <laughs> if we don't succeed, we run the risk of failure. So, actually, that there's some I can understand that one. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to First Peter chapter one? I want to read a couple verses from First Peter one, and then chapter two. And I'm in a little bit of a dilemma today because since I didn't speak last time I was here, I feel like I've got two messages that I want to get across in one message today. So kind of if you think when you speak, you got like four quarters using football analogy. Today, I feel like I may go into overtime. Um, so I'm going to watch it here. I kept trying to cut, kept trying to cut. But as I was preparing this week, I got so excited about what was in God's word here that I'm really finding it hard to cut on this. But I want to talk about our born identity. For the believer, what is our identity and our purpose as Christians? So it's either born identity, or if you like, maybe another way for it is reborn identity. And where I want to start with is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from, the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And then just step down to chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Such is the reason for maybe going into overtime. Such good, meaty stuff there in the word of God. You know, if someone was to ask you, who are you? You might think, you know, that's kind of an easy question, but maybe it isn't. If I was asked, who are you? My answer would be, I'm Randy White. And someone might say, no, that's your name. Who are you? 
And I'd say, well, I'm a 911 police and fire dispatcher. And they may say, no, that's what you do. Well, then maybe I might say, being Veterans Day weekend, I'm an American. And they may say, just to really start getting me at me now here, well, that's where you live. Well, then maybe if I'm starting to run out of ideas, I say, well, I'm, I'm an evangelical. And they may respond, well, that's your denominational preference. So when you think about this question, how would you answer that? Who are you this morning? I might go on and say, well, I'm six foot two. I'm a little over 200 pounds, a little over 200. But you know what? That's not me either. And that's not you. For who we are is far more what we don't see than what we see on the outside. There's much more to you on the inside. Matter of fact, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.16. He said, we recognize no man according to the flesh. And I often think maybe the early church didn't, but we often make that mistake and do. We recognize one another according to the flesh. Somebody has asked this question that is one of these ones that you could ponder over for some time if you really wanted to think about it. It's one of these brain games that there's a lot of substance to it. And it's really biblical if you think about it. And it's this. Is who you are determined by what you do? Or is what you do determined by who you are? I'm going to let you chew on that a little bit. I can see some brain cells are being burned up on that one. Is who you are determined by what you do? Or is what you do determined by who you are? We want to see today from God's word in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 that our hope for growth as children of God, our hope for meaning and our hope for fulfillment and purpose in this life is based on a right understanding of who God is and who you and I are in our relationship with him. makes all the difference in the world if we have a right understanding about who God is and who we are as his children in this relationship with him. A couple of points to start off from 1 Peter 1. The awesome thing, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ today, is that God has redeemed us. If you were to try and define that word, it's not a word that we use too much in our language today, this word redeem. But as I understand it, and as probably you do too, a slave was redeemed when someone paid money to buy his or her freedom. story was told about a missionary in West Africa who was trying to convey the meaning of that word redeemed in the Bambara language. So he asked his African assistant to express it in his native tongue. And this fellow said, we say that God took our heads out. And the perplexed missionary said, well, how does that explain the word redeemed? How does that explain it? God took our heads out. The man went on to tell him that many years ago, some of his ancestors had been captured by the slave traders chained together, and they were driven to the seacoast. And each of the prisoners had a heavy iron collar around his neck. And as the slaves passed through a village, a chief might notice a friend among the captives and offer to pay the slave traders in gold, ivory, silver, or brass. And then the prisoner would be redeemed by the payment. His head then would be taken out of his iron collar. And that's what they meant. God took our heads out. 
And God today, if you know him, you understand this glorious truth on Veterans Day weekend when we think about freedom and those who have sacrificed their lives for us in past wars and even in the present conflict in the Middle East. It's that God redeemed us from the tyranny of sin. And the amazing thing and the awesome thing is, is it wasn't with money, as 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us in verse 18 and following, but it was with precious blood. And not just the precious blood of anyone, but the precious blood of his own dear son. He took, as someone has said, our heads out of the enslaving collar of sin. And he has set us free. Are we glad about that this morning? Amen. We know if we're familiar with this and the significance of that, that in the Old Testament religious system, the sins of the people were rectified or dealt with by the killing of a choice lamb. And if you're familiar with it, the awesome thing is that it had to be a lamb without any imperfection. And as you go through the Old Testament accounts on this, you realize that it was a very detailed sacrificial system. God took great care for the Jewish people and how they were to do this and when they were to offer up sacrifices. And it was all a picture. And we're in this wonderful privilege in 2008 and to be able to look back and to see what was written in the Old Testament and see that it was all a picture of how God would ultimately deal with evil and with sin. And it was going to be through the life and the death and the resurrection of his dear son. You think about the worth of this blood. If you're familiar with, and you probably are, gas prices are rising. I noticed a change since I came back a couple months ago at the gas station here, which is usually one of the cheaper ones on San Ramon Valley Boulevard. Gas is going up. And I'm not too much of an economist, but it has something to do with the fact that I think this three-letter word starting with the letter O is going up. Almost $100 a barrel, maybe this week. And you look at it, if you follow any of this kind of financial news, you realize that gold is going up. Oil is going up. All the precious metals, if you like, are going up in value right now. Matter of fact, copper is such a wanted commodity now that we have people in Hayward and all throughout the state of California and probably throughout the country who are stealing it, left, right, and center. They're, they're taking copper out of pipes at businesses in Hayward, and we have water leaks in businesses that are flooding because people have gone in and are trying to get the copper in order to sell it, in order to get it off the market and be able to get it for a good price. But as it is with these kind of commodities, they do go up in value, and they also decline in value. And we're hoping for a decline in value, I think, on a couple of them about now. But one commodity, the blood of Christ, it only goes, in a sense, to us up and up and up in value the longer we know him and as we realize the precious worth of this commodity. You can't put a price on it. There's no price for the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. I remember I was talking to a fellow about a month ago at a Starbucks here. There's actually, in San Ramon, kind of confusing. You have two, one on one corner, one on another. And I said, I'll meet you at this one in Danville, actually. And he went to that one. And so for about a half an hour, we were both at two different Starbucks. And I called him and I said, where are you? He goes, I'm at Starbucks. And I said, well, I'm here and I don't see you, but there's one across the street. He doesn't know the Lord. And we were talking about spiritual things and about his need for Christ. And he had, if you like, kind of all the right answers. Jesus died on the cross. But I kind of had a sense that he didn't really understand what that meant. And I asked him, I said, you know, on what basis is it? How is it that a holy God 
who must judge our sin. And at the same time, a God who longs for relationship with us and loves us. How is it, on what basis does a holy God allow sinners into his presence? On what basis does he forgive us? How can he forgive? And he did not have an answer. And then we looked to Hebrews 9.22. And I'm sure some of those of you memorize scripture know that. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's on the basis of shed blood, the death of the Savior, that sin was punished. That was God's requirement. And someone had to die. And it had to be the precious blood of a lamb that was perfect. And in this glorious way that we would have never thought of, God thought up, and we'll see when he did, when this plan came into effect, he knew this. He knew that only his son could meet that requirement. And it was really cool that day as we were over a couple of cups of coffee, I saw kind of like a light bulb come on over the brain of this fella. He hasn't yet, I don't believe, come to know Christ. But he understood something he didn't know before. That it's on the basis of blood, shed blood, that we can experience forgiveness and avoid, as Scripture talks about, the second death, spiritual death. And I also love the way that Peter in this writing says that, he says that, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life. Looking in the strong concordance on that, really the idea of the word empty is vain conversation. We think sometimes when we're, when we're having a conversation and it's just kind of vain, it's empty, there's no substance to it. That's kind of how our lives were before we knew Jesus. There was emptiness. Another way the word is described in the Greek is it's profitless. There's no value apart from the Lord Jesus to life. You should ask someone sometime the question, are the pursuits of a person living apart from God meaningless or empty? And I believe a number of us here in the room today have come to that conclusion at some point where we said, yes, life is meaningless and empty without Christ. Some feel that a star performance And how they live and all of their education and all their success in the job market, all their accomplishments, that's what makes a whole person. But if that equation could work, if it was about success as far as how the world views success, then King Solomon would have been the perfect person. He had that. If you remember his writings, he says in Ecclesiastes, going through his history, that he was the king of Israel during the greatest years in its history. He had what a lot of folks long for, and they wish that they could have just some of this who don't know him. They just want some of this. And what he had, though, was power. He had position. He had wealth. And he had women. And he had a lot of women. Some folks would look at him and say, that's what I want. If I can't have all of it, I at least want some of what Solomon experienced. If that's what it was all about, If that was what significance and purpose and our identity was about, then Solomon had it. He was the most together guy that ever lived, if that's what it was about. And not only that, but it also says that God was gracious to him and gave him wisdom. More wisdom than any mortal was able to interpret. Imagine that, if you had that kind of wisdom that people could come to you and it was more than anyone could even understand. God gave you that. But you know what? What his conclusion was of all of this, that was a life apart from God, he said, the conclusion is 
It's all vanity. It's meaningless. Utter meaningless. You read the, those passages in Ecclesiastes and he comes to this section in chapter 2 and he says, as I just quoted to you, I had this, I had this, I had this, and he says it was meaningless. It didn't matter. And the whole purpose of the book is he sought to find purpose and meaning. And he realized it is not found in a life independent of God. And he wrote a book about it to tell us that. It's an awesome evangelistic book, the book of Ecclesiastes, to show someone who's trying to figure out how to live this life without the Lord Jesus. It does not work. It does not work. Millions, it's been said, have climbed those ladders of pursuing a meaningful life in a fallen world without God only to discover when they reach the top that their ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. And it really is true, isn't it? I've had the awesome excitement. Even though I'm only on about an hour and a half sleep today, I get so excited as this fellow who works at the police department was there today at our study who recently came to Christ. And what's so exciting about this guy is two years ago, he was an atheist. He used to flip me off and cuss at me and cuss at the Lord Jesus, and I can't even go into what he did and said in front of a bunch of people in the radio room. He's now a, he's a police officer, but he's now assigned into radio because we're so short. And he called me on the phone about a month ago, three weeks ago, actually maybe it was two weeks ago, and I'll blurred right now, and he said, I want to ask you a question. And I was like, what's that? I want to ask you about this Christian thing. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he goes, I, I, want, to, I want to know how do, you, how do you become a Christian? And I was like, you know, did I hear right? Did I, hear right? <laughs> I mean, those are, that's the question I long for, you know. Did I, and you know what? The sad thing was I said, I'll have to call you back. <laughs> because I had somebody over. And I said, I'll call you back in 30 minutes. And true to this guy, he, what had happened when I called in 30 minutes, it went to voicemail. And I couldn't reach him for two days. And then I found out after meeting with him that actually in his own privacy, in his own bedroom, he had received the Lord Jesus. He just wasn't sure. Was there something more I'm supposed to do than what he did? And I said, no. What you're describing to me describes someone who come, has come to know the Lord. But what he said was, as he said when we met, he goes, you know what? He goes, I've tried everything. He goes, and you know what? He goes, it ain't working. It ain't working. And he has money. He has uh, a lot of things that Solomon experienced, but he said, you know what? It ain't working. I'm miserable. And he was so ready. It was like the ripest piece of fruit that could come off the tree. And God had been working over the last couple of years. You think about the empty pursuits that you've been freed from. You know, the things that you were chasing after. Is, it's been often referred to in a commentary, chasing after the wind. You know, just this, just this effort to go after it, and you can't catch it. You just can't get your hands around it. And you think about the pursuits in your life. And even today, are you pursuing things that in the end, ultimately, are empty? They aren't going to satisfy. And I want to plead with you, if you do not know Christ, with the, uh, all that I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, and there's so many here, if we were to combine all of our years of how long we've known the Lord Jesus, it probably goes over a couple, 300, 400 years, we would be able to tell you that the wisest, most sensible choice is to know the Lord Jesus Christ and bow your knee to him. It's the only thing that really makes sense. And you know, the exciting thing, too, about this passage after verse 20, you think, you know, when God, did he get caught off guard on all of this about our emptiness and that our need for him? 
But no, it doesn't say that in verse 20, before the foundation of the world. He was chosen before the creation of the world, the Lord Jesus, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. His sacrifice on Calvary's cross was not an afterthought. It wasn't just a real quick stop-fix problem here that needs to be resolved. It wasn't something when God said, man, the world really has gotten out of control. i got to do something. And all of a sudden, he came up with the idea of a savior. Not at all. The plan was set in motion by an all-knowing, eternal God long before the world was ever created. And you try and get your head around that. I sure can. But it tells me something that God cares so much for his creation that he had this thought well before you and I would have ever even thought it, before the foundation of the world. And now verse 21 tells us that our faith and hope because of him, not are not in riches, are not in the market, are not in any other thing, not in 401ks, but our hope is in God. And when we understand that he has redeemed us, and that is something we say, yes, you bought me. You bought me. Then our identity is changed. Verse 22, as I read, something has happened. Verse 23 describes it specifically. For you have been born again when you've received the Lord Jesus Christ. Your identity has changed. I know one of the things that happens at the police department a lot, we're getting a lot more calls of identity theft where people are stealing people's identity. And I imagine even in a group this size, someone probably has had their identity taken in some way. Social security card. Somebody's used your credit card. Somebody's used a check. Somebody's got your address. Somehow they have found out your identity. And it's a terrible thing and it's a frustrating thing because you feel like you've been robbed. Somebody has gotten in and they can really mess up your accounts when all of a sudden you describe it. I just talked with the man yesterday where somebody got his ID and has bought four cars in his identity and he didn't know it over the last couple of years. And he wondered why his FICO score was the score it was. But identity theft, where it's taken from you. But the interesting thing about us is our identity has changed because a new identity has been given to us. It hasn't been taken. God has given us a new identity. New life brings new identity. And that's why it's important for us to really understand that being a Christian isn't simply, and as wonderful as it is, a person who is forgiven and goes to heaven. It's so much more than that. You've been given, and I, a new life. And as the, Peter says, it wasn't passed on by our parents. It's not something that happens through birth in the physical sense. It's spiritual. And God is the one who gave it. And it's never going to fade away. And that's why when we move on to 1 Peter chapter 2, when you and I are born again, there's now new titles for us have been given. New ways to describe those who've trusted Christ. And I love this verse. But you are a chosen people. Do you see yourself as that today? The privilege that you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. What an identity. When we, If we get our hands and our hearts, and our heads around the dynamite of verse 9, 
There is really no place for insecurity. There's no place for questioning who you are when you understand who you are in Jesus Christ. People get excited, don't they, about telling you who they are, about their accomplishments. You know, we ask often, what do you do? You know, it's kind of the normal thing, and it's an understandable question. We see somebody, hi, how are you? What do you do? And we tell. And we get kind of worked up about it, and sometimes other people get more worked up about it, and they'll tell you much longer than you want to know what they do. And all about their life, and all about their sense of who they are, and you get a sense that their significance comes in their accomplishments, in what they do. I even think of Charlie Brown as I think of the most favorite video of this time of year that I love is the Charlie Brown Christmas. And I have a lot of the lines already memorized from watching it because there's such a gospel story in that. But he got worked up when he was asked to be the director of the Christmas play, if you remember. He said, you want me? You want me to be the director? I mean, he couldn't believe it because of how he was treated Maybe you were one of those kids who, when it came to being chosen in the sports, you know, it was like group here, group here. And maybe you were one of the ones when they wanted you right away, you got selected right away. And maybe you know the experience or you know someone who was like, "Uh uh-oh, it's getting almost down to the bottom and I'm still here. And, you know, we chuckle about it now, we laugh about it now, but probably back then that was one of the scariest things that could happen as kids to us when it was like they want this person and then they want this person, but it was now down to two people. And who's it going to be? And if you ever experience that whole experience of being the last one chosen, it can be quite a thing. We view ourselves um, often by our education, our job, the amount of money that we earn. You know, you see our stories that kind of feed this into us when you see, you know, who's the most... 50 richest people in Fortune magazine or whatever. And you think, and sometimes you think, wow, that's success. And then you have to stop and say, wait a second. No, it necessarily isn't. It really isn't. It might be by the world's standards, but is it by God's standards? Now, maybe God's been very gracious to bless whoever these individuals are. But it doesn't necessarily mean that. But what Peter is saying in chapter 2, verse 9, is, is that our relationship with Christ is more important than our jobs, more important than any of our successes or our titles or our degrees or whatever's on our walls in our offices, our wealth or our education, it's more important that you are a people that would say today that I belong to God. I am a chosen people. I'm in this privileged place by the grace of God to be a royal priesthood where I can have access to God in prayer. I mean... You and I aren't going to be able to go have access to some of the upper uppers and the mucky mucks and the people of high authority. I mean, the chances of you having an appointment with the president or our governor or some high-ranking senator is probably very remote, that you would even get five minutes with someone in that type of authority. And yet you have direct access because of the blood of Jesus Christ to go right into the presence of God as a royal priesthood. I tell you, if it wasn't in the word of God, it would be too good to be true. But it is. And this is what God says. You are rich today, brothers and sisters, if you know him. We have been chosen by God as his very own. And I want to say to you today, what I've been challenged about and excited about in a fresh way this week is that my value comes from being one of God's children. Not from what I look like on the outside. Not from what I've acquired. Not from what I've achieved. 
which isn't a whole lot in the world's eyes, but from who I am in Jesus. Charlie Brown, I think, got that message eventually in that story, in the Christmas story. I remember that one scene where he opens up the mailbox. It's Christmas time, and he shouts into that mailbox, Hello in there. And there's no Christmas card. And he says, Rats, nobody sent me a Christmas card today. He said, I almost wish there weren't a holiday season. I know nobody likes me, but why do we have to have a holiday season that emphasizes it? And maybe you've experienced that. It really doesn't matter in one sense if we haven't done anything wrong what people think of us. And if you haven't decided today already in your hearts, and I think about this a lot and I have to come back to this frequently, it's this. Do I want to be a God-pleaser or do I want to be a man-pleaser? And every day, every day, I'm just like you, I am faced with that challenge in certain situations and circumstances where it's okay. And how I'm going to respond here now, am I ultimately going to be a God-pleaser in my reaction and how I'm thinking and what's in my heart? Or am I going to be someone that just simply wants to bow under the pressure of a man or woman? And the truth is, and we know this, that it can really rock our boat when we find out that others are saying something about us that we don't think is kind or accurate. Where we don't feel that is, we're being loved and appreciated and understood like we think we should be, and we somehow get wind of that, it can really crush us. And I suggest sometimes the problem with that is, is that we may be thinking too much about what others think of us. And not enough about what does God think of me and how he sees me in the beloved. And ultimately, that's what really, really matters. I remember Howard Hendricks saying, you know, I have quit in the ministry that he's been involved in over the years. He said, I've quit so many times. It's just that nobody knows it. He's written his resignation letter so many times he has filed in his drawer. And his wife said, Howie, that's a fire hazard. How many letters you have of resignation? And then, of course, as wives often do, she comes out with this brilliant nugget. She says, you know, Howie, and I remember this. This was a conference I went to back in 1977, and I still remember this conference. I mean, how many conferences do you remember 30 years later? But I remember him saying that she said to him, Howie, who are you working for? You know, who ultimately are you serving? Is it ultimately God? May he then get the glory, even if we don't get the response that we think we should from others. I know insecurity is a huge issue for so many, and it can be huge and something that needs a lot of prayer and careful counsel when your hurt and your pain has come from those that you love and you trust, and yet you've been hurt. And yet God will never do that to you. And when you find your place of security, your place of significance in him, that certainly helps to ease that pain as you're working through it. Scripture says in this passage, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And so wrapping up, it's not going to go too much into too much overtime. What is the mission? What is the mission that God has for us when we understand our identity? What is our purpose? Why did he leave us here? Why does he continue to leave us here? here on this earth. Well, he tells us in verse 9 of chapter 2, 
The reason you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, is so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. With this wonderful, affectionate words that he tells us, with privilege, with this awesome privilege of being born again by the blood of the Lamb, comes responsibility. And one of our responsibilities is to declare him, is to communicate him. The one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light is saying to you and to me who know him and, and prompting us by the, his spirit, is there someone that you know that you have a contact with in your place of influence that needs to hear his praises, that needs to hear about him? Yes, it's with our lives, and we'll look at that in a minute, but it has to be also with our lips. It cannot be avoided. Not only should we be verbal, but we also have to understand our lasting citizenship. Verse 11, that's why he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Good thing for us to remember, isn't it? And Philippians 3 talks about the same idea that you and I, as his children, are aliens and strangers to this world. This is not our permanent home. We, if you like, there's a couple of different ways to think of this. We are on temporary assignment. We have green cards. We are not permanent residents of the United States. We are not always going to live here. Home is heaven. And you know the awesome thing about this home, that Jesus says he's preparing a place for us in John 14, is it's not losing any value. A lot of our homes in the last couple of years have lost value. And it may go lose more value. And people, they're not feeling as rich any longer because they've lost 100,000, 200,000 and more maybe in their homes. But for you and I as his children, we haven't lost the richness that we have in Jesus and how rich we are. Our home is in heaven. And you know, in one sense, in one sense, we'll never be fully satisfied until we get there. In one sense, we're, we're on this temporary assignment where his ambassadors, the word tells us, and yet ultimately our deep desires to see him face to face. And so this is great now, but it's even going to get better. And so sometimes the problem for us is we're just gotten way, way too comfortable here to the point to where the idea of going home to be with him, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. yeah, maybe tomorrow. Yeah, you could come back anytime. You know. The challenge is to have our lives centered in the spiritual rather than the material. And what a challenge that is. What does that mean practically? If your life is thinking on the spiritual rather than the material. Well, maybe it's this. I'm a father. I just threw out a couple of examples. A father might plan five minutes to pray with his teenage son before going to work. A single woman might reach out to a widower. A couple might reach out to their neighbors by inviting them over for a meal. Whatever it is that's thinking spiritual, don't get so caught up in the material that you weed out the spiritual part of our lives. And then in wrapping number three, also what we need to do, what the responsibility is, is we need to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against our souls. Remember Peter said in verse 9 that we are a holy nation. Positionally, this awesome truth as when the Father sees you and I, those of us who know him, he sees Jesus. He sees us as righteous in his sight. Positionally, practically, he says, let's see that 
practical position of how you are increasing more and more like your position. We are growing more and more in holiness in the way that we think, how we speak, and how we live our lives. Sinful desires could be anything that is inconsistent with the will of God. And you know what? We have found it drains us dry, doesn't it? It drains us dry when we're entangled in that web of the sinful desires. And so he says abstain from it. They wage war against your soul. There's absolutely no good that comes from it. So avoid it. And then lastly, he says, live good lives that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. How do you respond when you're wrongly accused? You know what? Our response might win over critics, over how our behavior is in that response. Because they'll say, you know what? He's responding, she's responding in an incredibly supernatural way. Not responding the way that normally one would. They're not fighting the way one would fight. But they're choosing to live a life that's going to honor God and how they respond. We have to think about that. I heard some criticism of myself a couple of days ago, and it was at work. It was unfounded. It was fourth-hand info. You know how that is. I wish I hadn't heard it. But I thought, you know what? When I see that person, I'm just going to give them the cold shoulder today. And I'm just going to back off, and I'm going to be aloof and distant, and I'm going to just let them, I'm just going to shut down. That was an initial reaction. That's how I'm going to behave. And I thought, I can't behave like that. I have to behave like Christ would want me to. And so I had to pray, pray hard before I went into work that day just to love this person and to behave in a way that Jesus would want. And it was a good day. It was a good day. And there was, maybe it wasn't true. Maybe it was. But how do we respond when we are criticized? John Calvin, in wrapping up, said that it is the first duty of the believer to make God's invisible kingdom visible. Are we doing that in our homes, in our places of where we live? So I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, think about it. Who are you? And determine to live in the light of that truth as we leave here today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that this all is from you, that you have given us a new identity that we are born again. We know that that has come as a result of the precious blood that you spilled on our behalf. We want to thank you that we have relationship with you now. We want to thank you that you have given us an abundant life and a life of meaning and purpose that we never, ever experienced apart from you. We pray that you'll keep us on the right track. We pray that we'll see and remember that we are just here for a very short time. This is a very temporary assignment indeed and that we will be busy about your business, and that you'll give us the grace to do it. I pray you protect us from evil, Lord, that we indeed will be a holy nation before you individually and as a body of your believers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.